I'm Quinn Murphy, and this is In My Chair. Manhattan-born and Bronx-raised Paul Cavaco has had a career that began with his romantic and professional relationship with legendary stylist Kezia Keeble, with whom he founded styling firm known today as KCD. Cavaco went on to serve as fashion director at Harper's Bazaar and Vogue magazines. In 1999, Cavaco was appointed creative director at Allure, a position he held for 16 years. Throughout his career, Cavaco has worked with some of the most influential photographers of our era, including Richard Avedon, Bruce Weber, Stephen Meisel, Michael Thompson, and Mario Testino, styling ad campaigns, fashion shows, and magazine shoots. This is a great honor and a privilege for me to welcome Paul Cavaco in my chair. Hi. <laughs> Hi. That was hilarious to hear. Okay. Had to get that off my chest. Yeah, whoa. <laughs> it was a little mouthful. Um, I have wanted you on this podcast, I think, since I started. I know since I've started it. And um, I am just like, I feel a little bit nervous because, you know, you want to, I want to do a good job. The more please. pedigree or the career somebody has, the more pressure I feel to you know, do it justice. So I'll you're just so good. Out there. You're, you're so great on the show. I love, I've listened to so many of the podcasts, if not almost oh. all of them. And they're Thank really you. great. You know, you. so. Yeah, Did Tawny um, put in a good word for me? Well, I, Tawny and Garen. Oh, okay. told me during the pandemic. I think Garen told me first and then Tawny told me. And then I completely don't always look on my DMs. Okay. And so, you know, I'd never pay attention to it. And then, and I was, I've been kind of on and off Instagram. Like I haven't posted in two years, if not longer now. But, um, so yeah, so I didn't, I, I noticed it the other day and I called you, I DM'd you back right away because Tani was talking about it. You know, I think I DM'd you nine times and each time I, I unsend it. So it doesn't look like I've sent it before. And then I resend it. You know, so people, you probably think I'm like a sociopath, you know. Hi, Paul. I didn't didn't even notice it until. Oh, okay. And I knew knew who you were. You know, I didn't remember I worked with you till the other day when we talked about, you know, that you worked with Brigitte. As an assistant, I with Brigitte yeah. Reese Anderson and Stefan Murray, and I think that was it at Allure, but yeah. So Yeah, it was all at Allure, yeah. I remembered you. Of course, you wouldn't have known who I was. I was, you know trying oh, you should be silently noticed, but then also not trying to get in the way and just kind of, you know, go under the radar. I'm sure I spoke to you anyway, but you know, <laughs> or maybe oh, not. Yeah. <laughs> no, you were, you were, you were great and really nice. And I was, it was, um, I, I think I had said to you with Stefan, it was a Michael Thompson shoot with um, Raquel Zimmerman. Right. Which and I it was a two day shoot and it was just like everything. And then also I did a bunch of covers and uh, fashion stories with Brigitte. I remember we did one with Leighton Meester at the Jane Hotel and the fire department showed up. So that was like a really (laughs) fun, thrilling moment. I mean, you must have so many stories of crazy things happening. You know, it's, it's funny. People ask me all the time and I don't. I always think like people say, oh, didn't something, and I always think, no, nothing happened. To me, it's going to work. Uh-huh. And, you know, so, and, you know, sometimes things happen like the fire department comes, so you deal with it. I don't think of it as anything other than, 
you know, so, and people tend to be very well behaved around me for some reason. I think because I'm you know, number one, I'm older than you know the models are, and most and the hair and the makeup usually, and sometimes it has been you know in the last you know two decades older than the photographers. Because when I started, I was, you know, it was Avedon older than me, my dad's age, Penn older than me, Patrick five years older, Bruce five years older, you know, so they were slightly older. Mm-hmm. And I was just out of school. So I was, you know, but then as the years went, I was the same age as, you know, I was a little older than the models we were shooting. When you were working at that age, like, I think nowadays it would be very uncommon for someone to be like, you know, I just stumbled upon a shoot and Bruce Weber was like, hey, you're good at this kid. And the next thing I knew I was on set and shooting for Vogue. Was it incredible when that happened? Not that it happened like just like that, but that you were able to move that quickly or was it at the time or was that just the time and that's how things worked? So I think the thing you have to know is, number one, I had, I worked with Keisha, who was at the time, you know, we were together, you know, at, at the time. And how it started is I modeled. She, I thought I wanted to write, and I thought editors wrote. And some editors do write for magazines, and some are fashion, you know, and they fashion editors that write, and there are some fashion editors that do shoots. I thought I went to be a writing one. And Keisha got a phone call from Esquire saying, you know, that she they needed a fashion editor. And she was at the time freelance. There were not a lot of freelance people. So this is 1976. There's not very many. I wasn't at all. even alive. Yeah. So there's not very many. Um, there's, you know, a few. There's no men you know, freelance. I mean, I think the only men really working is Robert Turner working for Vogue. He used to work at Vogue Pads and he went to Vogue. He was a great, great, wonderful editor. Andre Leontali. But I think Robert was really the one who did mostly shoots. You know, Robert was a sittings editor. You know, and that's what editors were called. You know, if you did shoots, you were called a sitting editor. And it meant that you would go on to a shoot and usually people comes from you know, like the beginnings of, you know, magazines where society women would come and they would sit for their portrait to be taken by a photographer. And the person that was there to fluff them up and stuff was the sittings editor. So that's Mm. where that came from. And so Keisha had been one, a sittings editor at Glamour and then at Vogue under Mrs. Vreeland. So she had a pedigree already, you know, so when I started, she was already at this point freelance and had gone back to working freelance for Vogue, which was, she was probably the first freelance person to work for Vogue because it was usually the editors on staff. But since she had worked there, they felt safe in getting her in there because she knew it. And uh, so they hired her to do Esquire. And one of the first stories was a college kid story. And I was just recently out of college. And it had to be real people. So I went to see Bruce to see if, you know, because he needed, you know, real people. So I went, my friend Woody Hochschwender, who was 
at the time a bicycle mechanic in Central Park, later became a New York Times writer. <laughs> but, you know, at the time we were both just out of college. So we went up and, you know, Woody is 6'2", great, great looking, beautiful red hair, really handsome. And all these other guys who were all looked enough like models to pass. And then me, who was five foot five, weighed 108 pounds. And, you know, I have, I mean, you know what I look like because you work with me. I have a very big nose, I have big eyes. And then I had a big mouth because, you know, I was young. Paul, you're and, a type. I have to say, you can't sell yourself short. There, there is. You are definitely a type, okay? <laughs> there were people out there who were looking for that. You just didn't know it at the time. I never knew it. But, you know, so um, he, like, booked me. And I thought, oh, this will be it's great. Someone finally thinks I'm nice looking. I'm not ugly, like everyone said. So I was really thrilled. I get on the shoot, and I am kind of the sort of the foil, the joke of the thing. Everybody is, like we're running around at one point with instruments. They all have like, you know, one has a guitar, one has a, you know, a clarinet, one has a trump, you know, a trumpet. I have a giant bass fiddle that's bigger than I am. And I'm running through the, you know, through the streets of Harvard carrying this thing. And everyone gets to look, you know, like themselves, and I have to smile. And I look like a Doberman when I smile. So there's this giant smile on this very short person who's standing next to all the tall people all the time. So you see how short I am. And I'm wearing glasses. And the woman who came on the booking from Esquire <laughs> kept saying to Bruce and Keisha, that boy is so ugly. Stop. <laughs> I swear he's got a face only a mother could love. And then the next day she came. I used to work at a restaurant on 57th Street and 6th Avenue called Brew Burger. It was a burger with all the beer you could drink. Get into how crazy that must have been. And she came in there the next day to book me for another shoot. <laughs> so because she needed someone ugly. In truth, that was the reason. And so she booked me. And I was like, yeah, great. It was like It didn't hurt your feelings. No, it was $125. I had never made that much money. I don't make that much now. You know, so I was like, yeah, yeah, I'll do it. You know, so but, I was- Paul, before that point, had you been interested in fashion no. at all? No. I was interested in fashion in the way, I guess, like kids. I watch see my granddaughter now, who's 15, and like they're interested in like Instagram. They'll see like, you know, Kendall Jenner and the way mm -hmm. she mixes like, you know, sport clothes with regular clothes, you know, and Haley, the way Haley Bieber dresses. So that, you know, and I was interested with, you know, because. At the time, it was the 60s and, early, you know, in the 70s. So the only time I was really interested was because you'd see how the Beatles dressed. Mm -hmm. And it was all thrift. And I was, my family is not, doesn't have a lot of money. So it was something I could afford. And you could look a certain way. You Were know, you so stylish, it was though? I don't think so. But me, I thought I was, I'm sure. You know, I would not have dressed. It's like we all think we have good taste. 
it's like people think they have good taste in music and then you go to their house and you listen and you wish they would turn it off. Yeah. No one wants to hear, you know, somebody's playlist, you know? Yeah. But, you know, so yes, I'm sure I thought I had good taste, but then, you know, I think it was good enough, but when I, w- I wasn't stylish, you know, but I think when I went, when I was with Keisha, I learned a lot, you know, she was, and then working with Bruce, who happened, you know, Bruce Weber, who happens to be an incredible stylist, you know, and then, uh, you know, so when I started working, so I did the shoot with Bruce and afterwards he turned, Keisha said, he's really good at putting clothes together. And he called me a few weeks later and said, will you do a shoot with me? I had no idea what I was doing. And I went, and, you know, it was menswear. So, but you know, that's also with, highly technical. I mean, if even if you're a man, you don't know necessarily know how to, you know, about garments and tailoring and everything. Well, the thing is, I know I'm Latin, so I, you know, I, I knew how to iron because we had to iron our clothes every morning before school. My mother didn't do it; she taught us how to iron, and we had to do it. So I ironed my own clothes. So I knew how to iron, which you need to know how to do. And I knew how to fit clothes just by watching. You know, my grandmother was a seamstress. My mother was a professional seamstress, you know, in probably what would be now a sweatshop in the Bronx. But my mother was a brilliant sewer. So I watched, you know, she had a different job. You know, she worked in an office, but she was, you know, she made all, you know, she would make my sister's clothes. She would make clothes. You know, so I knew enough that I could get away with it. And Bruce and Nan Bush, who was Bruce's rep, really helped me in the beginning. Like Nan would stand there and they'd say to me, you know, the person, the you know, from the agency would say, oh, the, the sleeve is wrinkled. And I'd be thinking, his arm is bent. Of course it's wrinkled. You know, I didn't understand what was <laughs> And then Nan would walk over and just like, as if she was walking through the room and just like pull the sleeve. And so I learned from that, you know, so, yeah. Do you have a good understanding of a garment Yeah. now? Like you can be on set and you understand how fabrics are going to, you know, work and lay and how things should fit and go together. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I, you know, I've been working now, you know, while well, no longer work in fashion, but I was working for 45 years, you know, and working at, you know, every day you know, working, you know, only, I mean, for 20 years, I worked every day, you know, in a studio practically or on location because I was freelance. And at the time there were very few freelance people and very few males. And I did menswear in the beginning. So there were people that, you know, the reason I worked with Avedon was he had a menswear client and he, you know, if you worked at Condé Nast or at Esquire, you know, and did menswear, you could not work freelance, uh, you know, if you were on staff. So there was very few people who knew how to do menswear. And I had, a, by this time, the very, very beginning, I worked with Sal Cesarani. I would, you know, he was doing a show and Keisha got me sort of like an internship there. So I would go after, I would serve lunch at Brew Burger and then go, to Sal's and he taught me so much about menswear and all the rules and you know what was needed and then we were friends with Alan Flusser who is a menswear designer and of a different you know very 
more British than American. He's American, but the feeling was more like Anderson and Shepard, who's a British, you know, tailor. And he, you know, they both taught me, you know, like what moleskin gloves were. I did had no idea, you know. And then Keisha taught me so so much about even menswear. So. I have a question for you that I've always wondered is like, what is your relationship personally to clothes? Because you have a uniform. So badly? No, you have a uniform. Well, there's two types of people, men in fashion, and there's probably more, but just for the sake of what I'm about to say, you have Karl Lagerfeld who wore fashion and had a fan and had all the um, regalia of what, you would think of a male would wear in fashion. And then you have someone like yourself who has, I've seen uh, multiple times in, you know, let's say Levi's new balance shoes and it's something very simple on the top. Do you love clothes? I love clothes. What happened is I, you know, forget I'm from, you know, I I grew up in the fifties and sixties. And there was, you know, it was sort of like the casualing of America, you know, it was mm-hmm. like jeans and, you know, so, so that's how I was brought up. So I would literally come home from school every day and change into, you know, cause I had to wear like regular slacks and a regular, you know, shirt that, you know, with buttons, I would come home with my cousin and my sister and we would all change into our jeans and t-shirts and then go you know, not, we didn't have a backyard. We had an alleyway between two buildings and that's where we would go play, you know, and that's how I grew up. And so that's, you know, became my uniform. Even as an adult, I still wear sneakers, jeans, like you said, and I wear a t-shirt and a cashmere sweater over it. And I have, you know, multiple cashmere sweaters in a very small array of colors. <laughs> so I like your teacher that you you know thought never changed their clothes. But, but what the is reason, the psychology of that? The you? psychology is if you work in the studio and you're a stylist, I'm you know literally on the floor tying shoes, you know, lacing up you know boots, um, carrying trunks. You know, it's a much more physical job of just getting to location, you know, of getting to the studio. You know, I'm literally pulling, pushing trunks up the thing, you know, with my assistants. And so it's kind of, you don't, you know, what's the point of wearing good clothes? You know, but don't you want the appearance of three eighths longer leg? You know, no, I when mean, you're... I'm five foot five. The leg is not going to get any longer. Do you know what I mean? It's <laughs> right. Like... <laughs> if, you know, I mean, I think at one point, you know, I had always been very skinny. And then when Tani and I worked together, you know, Tani and I shared an office at Harper's Bazaar. And Tani got pregnant at the same moment I quit smoking. And so I used, you know, and I thought, okay, I'm going to quit smoking. I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to care about gaining weight. And so there I'd be with Tani. We'd seen right across from each other. And she'd say, don't you think it's time for like a lovely peanut butter and jelly sandwich, (laughs) you know, toast? And I go, yeah. So she would order one. I would order two. 
she would have half of her. So I ended up with two and a half. And then I'd say, don't you think we need to wash it down with like a vanilla milkshake? And she'd go, yes, she, I would, you know, she would order one, I would order one, she would drink half, I would drink hers and mine. So she gained very little weight. She gained the appropriate amount of weight you're supposed to gain when you have a child. And I gained 50 pounds. Wow. And, and you know, but it wasn't because she was, you know, everyone said it was sympathy pregnancy. No, I was eating. I was just using it as my opportunity to eat. And then I would go home and have ice cream. So I gained mm-hmm. 50 pounds. And then it took me years to lose the last, you know, 10, 15 pounds. And finally, at one point, I just thought, you know, like when, you know, by the time I met you, I think I was probably thinner. And I was like, okay, you know, I'm in fashion. Not when I'm in the studio, but when I'm at work, I should look more fashionable and buy good clothes. You know, so I tried it, but it doesn't really <laughs> Well, did, but, but did you always feel cool? No, I think if, I don't think you ever feel cool. Really? You know, yeah, I don't, you know, I think I feel fine all the time. I think, you know, I think there's so much psychology to that. You know, do you feel cool? You know, I ran, you know, I spent a good portion of my, you know, time working with very cool people. You know, I worked with Stephen Mizell, you know, Anna Sui, who is, you know, beyond cool, you know. Stephen Sprouse, you know, so I ran around with those people. And then in the nineties, you know, I, you know, was, I'm friends with Candy Pratt's pot, Candy Pratt's Brights, who is really cool. Kate Moss, you know, so I ran around with these crews, but I always felt, I was always someone, I was always like the dad, mm. you know, I, you know, cause I'm the, you know, people that are my age, I'm from that group. No one had a kid. I was one of the few, one of the few people that had a child. So I was always, you know, when the girls something happened to the girls, they would come and talk to me because I was like dad. You know, that's why when you ask if anything weird happened, nothing did because everyone thought they were standing in front of their father. So they weren't going to be badly behaved in front of their dad. But Paul, don't you feel like the stylist is expected to have the secrets to what is cool and what is? not even on trend, but that they are the conduit to style, even if you don't have it. I think, yeah, I think you're, I think this is a job. And I think if you're doing your job, you're looking at trends, you're looking at what's next. You can, if you're, you know, really good, you can actually sort of anticipate what's about to happen. Also, if you're surrounded by people that kind of, you know, have their finger on the pulse, but also that create, you, you know, so I looked cool by association mm-hmm. and I paid attention. I loved my job. I paid attention. You know, I studied it. You know, I, you know, I think. Well, you, you know, know a lot more now than you did when you first did that shoot with Bruce oh, Weber. I knew very, very, very little next to nothing. I mean, when I worked for Avedon the first time, I knew nothing, you know, but I knew how to, you know, I knew how to hem a pant. I knew how to, you know, pin. You but know, how did knew- you educate yourself? Because I know for a fact that you're like an encyclopedia of fashion references and, and history. 
I am sure that you could hang with the best of them talking about very specific moments in time. So how did you get there? I, you know, so, you know, I, you know, I lived with Keisha, I was married to Keisha and she was part of a lot of the moments in fashion. You know, she worked at Vogue under Mrs. Vreeland. So she was part of it. She was a great communicator. And so she would tell me stories that I was fascinated. And then I would read. Mm-hmm. I would just read about it. And then, you know, but you had to find books because there was no, you know, internet. And then, you know, I worked with Bruce. Bruce is an encyclopedia of, you know, photography, film, uh, you know, and he would just say something and I would just have to go out and buy the book or go, you know, like the photo book of somebody, you know, and then, you know, when, you know, I worked with Avedon, so I, you know, we had all the Avedon books. So I looked at all the Avedon books, I looked at all the pen books, you know, um, you know, Keisha worked with Helmut Newton. I had, eventually I worked with Helmut years and years later, but she worked with Helmut. So I knew that I had met Helmut and his wife. Um, you know, so I was all there in front of me for me to either pay attention to or not. And I just, you know, I wanted to pay attention. I was so excited by this job. You know, it was like everything I wanted was storytelling through, you know, and the clothes were the medium. And I like clothes. And, you know, when you look at how beautifully, you know, I'd never seen clothes so beautiful in my life. You know, so when you see these, you know, incredible clothes, you know. So I was just really interested. I was really And you were accepted because you were coming in with established people like your wife or like Bruce Weber. So you didn't have the snobbery or that kind of brick wall that you couldn't pass. You know, I had had different brick walls, you know. People, you know, because I had Keisha, you know, I had an entree into it. Um, there was, you know, I, you know, and Keisha was very close to Brian Bantry, who was, I mean, he, I think his, his company may still be Brigitte's, you know, Reese Anderson's, uh, agent, but he was an agent and he had Patrick de Marchelier, Alex Chatelaine and stuff. So he would book Keisha and when she wasn't available, he would say, you know, Paul's coming on the booking instead. And I would do the booking. And, but what I think people don't know is even when we did catalog, we would put the clothes together, like, you know, just painstakingly take the alpha and decide what shoe goes with it, what purse goes with it, what earring. So I was being trained by Keisha on what was, you know, she was a Vogue getter. So it was what Vogue thinks is chic. Mm. And so I got trained that way. So I got Vogue training without having worked at Vogue, you know. So, you know, and then I worked with Bruce. Then when I worked with Avedon, Avedon would turn to me like when, like, remember the first shoot, and he'd say, what's the surprise? Go, what the fuck are you talking about? What's the surprise? And I, I think, oh, my God. And I go, he's wearing, he'd be like an all, you know, this is the 70s, so all in olive drab and browns. And I'd say, oh. He has a mauve color sock on. Oh. And he would be like, oh. Then he asked the guy to like put his hand in his pocket and just creep up the pant a little bit so he could see the sock. 
you'd say, ask the model to do it. So I learned all these things by watching these incredible people and, you know, wanting to be part of that. So, you know, it really, you know, you also put, have to put um, something sexy or sexual in a, in an image. I think you put in it, whatever your propensity is. You know what I mean? So I think Mm. some people are like, you know, I happen to like sex, you know, and I happen to think that um, people dress, you know, a lot of people, not everyone, obviously, but, you know, people dress for falling in love more than, you know, it's more about romance. But, you know, I always think, would you want to be with this person? You know, like I put the clothes together and say, is this someone you want to be with? Or, you know, or, you know, is it just like look terrible? You know, do they just look like they're, you know, fashion victim, you know? And you can dress really beautifully without being a fashion victim. (laughs) You know what I mean? I think there's, you know, two different things. But yeah, so for me, it's always about can you fall in love with the person? I always want to Even if you're working, no matter you're working with Mario Testino or Annie Leibovitz, like who have two very different, you know, um, viewpoints about sex, I would say, you know, one is, one is very clear. The other right. was a stylist try to figure that out with Annie on set. Well, I think the thing about, you know, I think that stylist's job is appropriateness. Mm. What is appropriate for what we are doing? And who am I working with? So you style into that person's photograph. You know, I don't think you, you know, I don't think I have a, you know, uh, what do you call again? Kind of like a, a signature look. You know, I'm neither, you know, I'm not minimal. I'm not, you know, I'm sort of like all over the place a little, you know, I mean, it sounds, you know, but I feel like I have a little bit of range, you know, and I can do a lot of things, but because I'm styling into the picture and the photographer. So, you know, it's different than having a signature that I need to put on each picture. I don't Is that why it. you do a lot on set? Yeah, I what I actually do is I think somebody did a very big editor did an interview about and they actually mixed me up with someone else, but I was the person who did it. I had a mannequin, you know, a dress mannequin in the closet of Harper's Bazaar, Vogue, Allure. I don't wear those clothes. So I don't really know, you know, like a lot of people can put the clothes on the floor and look at them and, you know, put the, this pant with this jacket. I can do that to menswear because I know what the, you know, what, go, you know, I know the fit of it. I didn't you know. And women's proportion of everything, you know, each outfit has a different proportion. So you really have to study it. So I had a mannequin that I would dress and do the entire thing before I even went on set. I would have the entire look put together, what shoe I wanted, what belt, what jewelry, because I knew the minute I dressed the person, the minute I saw that head coming out of the clothes, it was going to change something. You know, so you see a certain face and you think, oh, that's, they don't need accessories. They don't need that maybe i should take you know they have you know 
beautiful skin, maybe I take the shirt away from the suit because you want to see the beautiful, you know, skin on their, you know, chest, you know, or, you know, they have a beautiful neck. Maybe I don't put the turtleneck on that person, you know, so you start to take it apart, but you, you know, I always think there's a moment from the time, you know, when you all get on set, you know, there's that moment, all of you, like the model goes on, you know, goes on set and then all of you sort of line up. So you're you, the photographer, the stylist, the hair, the makeup, you're all kind of sort of lined up together looking. Holding your breath. And then you look and you see the mistake. And the, from, from the, you know, you have from the time, from where you're standing till you hit the girl to start thinking about how am I going to change this to make it work? So I'm always prepared because I know I'm going to change it. And you, you have seen me on set. I'm always moving the clothes. I'm touching the clothes. If, if there's a problem, the picture isn't working, even if it's not the clothes, I'll change the model because I need to change the energy in the studio. So and that I will, doesn't I'll, come across as nervousness or indeci- being indecisive. No, you know, but you know how sometimes you're looking, you're on set and you're looking and it's just not working and you don't know what it is. You don't mm-hmm. know if it's, you know, is it the, you know, the outfits are kind of, you work for a magazine are somewhat preordained, you know what I mean? Once you've decided what it is, but you know, Sometimes it's the outfit. Sometimes, you know, you have to take something off the outfit. You know what I mean? Maybe, you know, sometimes it's the hair isn't really working. Sometimes the makeup isn't working. You know, so we're working with models who are all very beautiful. Anything you do that them looks fine. Give them a red mouth, they look good. Give them, you know, take the mouth off, they still look beautiful. You know, it doesn't, so it's harder because they're so great looking to know when something is wrong. So you really have to pay attention. So a lot of times if we're stuck and the picture just isn't happening and I don't, we don't know what it is, I'll sometimes just go, because I always think if you work at a magazine and you're the editor, you're kind of the person who holds the space of what's going to happen that day. And you're supposed to hold this. For me, it's always the space of possibility. Like, what can possibly happen today? Because we never know what's going to happen. You know, you can figure it all out. You can have a reference. And, you know, I know you, you've talked a lot about references, but if you have a reference, you know, it's something to inspire you not to copy, although I have done that, I must admit. You know, but, um, you know, you... So sometimes you just have to, like, the inspiration is... the. You can't get it, so you just have to change something. And you have to change the vibe in the room. And sometimes just changing the model changes the vibe. You know. Who taught you the most about how to work on set of the photographers that you've worked with? Two people. Bruce Weber and Stephen Mizell. Stephen Mizell, also probably one of the most brilliant stylists in the world. Brilliant hair dresser brilliant makeup artist (laughs) he can do all of it like literally can do all of it and Um, has taught everybody who he works how to do it all of it yeah you know it's you know when you work in that studio it's amazing it's so much fun it's the you know the collaboration i mean we would sit 
But this is how we were with everyone in the beginning. We always sat in the makeup room. I'm sure when I worked with you and Brigitte, I was in the makeup room. I sit in the makeup room. You know, I grab the girl's face when Brigitte's done and I stare at it. Mm -hmm. And and I'll say, this eyebrow's off. I'm sure you heard me say it to her. And she's a brilliant makeup artist. You know, but we, we study it. We all change things. You know, Garen will sometimes say to me, the dress looks, you got to pin the dress in. I think it's too frumpy. You know, he'll say things like, we all collaborate. And in Steven's studio, it was very much that. It was very much all of us together. And you were allowed to to give input to Steven. Yes, always. We were all together. You know, he, you know. But is he intimidating? I mean, did you forget? I'm going to say, you know, I've known him. Before he was a, he was, when I met Stephen, he was just starting to take pictures professionally. And he was an illustrator at Women's Way Daily. Brilliant illustrator, gorgeous illustrator. And we had, you know, we kind of started together. So, you know, I had a different in, you know what I mean? I was with him since the beginning. And he respected you. Yeah, I mean, at the time, I was the one who had been was working a lot, you know, and I was with Keisha who worked, you know, an enormous amount. So, you know, and Keisha really was his big champion. She loved his photographs the same way she loved Bruce Weber's. She was big champions of them, you know, because she so believed in the beauty of their photographs. Now, now I know Stephen Mizell is a big on references. When did that I have to imagine there was a time when, you know, there weren't references unless they were fine art, right? And then when did when did fashion photography references really become kind of a big thing? I, you know, it's hard to tell because I think a lot of what I work I was doing a lot of it was referenced, and I'm going to explain the referencing because there was no internet. So either you had, you know, Stephen is an encyclopedia of fashion photography. He knows every photograph, every model, you know, he knows everything. There's not, you know, he knows what foot is pointing where. You know, if you look at Stephen's pictures, there's not, it's all considered. Mm-hmm. There is not a mistake anyway. Like, if that toe was pointing in that direction, that's where it was meant to go. That wasn't an accident. And if he sees it as an accident, when he sees it, and it may have started as an accident, he will perfect it so that it looks beautiful in the photograph. So Stephen would sometimes you know, say something like, you know, oh, let's do a thing that's, you know, kind of like this, you know, and then you know, he would do it, but I think the thing, what was brilliant about Stephen was it may look like it's referenced, but if you really study it, there's a fuck you in the picture. Mm. There is always Stephen in the picture. There's always a little bit of the rebel, a little bit of the outcast in it. And, you know, that's what makes the picture different. It's, it's fashion. Make no mistake, Stephen is a great fashion photographer. You always see the clothes in a Stephen Mizell photograph. Is it also camp? No. 
I mean, uh, to me, no, never. I don't mean that necessarily in a derogatory way. No, no. I think if Stephen is camp, it's because he intended it to be camp. But I know he's like a huge fan of Drag Race, and that didn't surprise me as somebody who loves to take a certain type of photograph, like when he did the QVC photograph for the women with all the plastic surgery. You have to have a certain amount of of um, it's very gay and camp and also humorous. Is it camp or is it really knowing what is going on right now in this world? Or having an agenda, like we photographed, we did a shoot, which, you know, did not make it into uh, print, but we had done a shoot for, uh, you know, Aliyah Azadine. And he had asked three photographers, and Stephen was one of them, to do, you know, it was supposed to be their interpretation of his clothes. And we did the clothes on boys. They were women's clothes. We did them all on men. And we did them on drag queens, you know, transgendered people. You know, so Stephen brought all these things into conversation. You know, so... Is it camp or is he just knowing? You know, yes, it's, you know, gay and you can think it's camp, but is it just knowing what the conversation needs to be? You know, mm. we did the, you know, Stephen did the, the, you know, safe sex posters that were all over New York City of people having sex, not having actual sex, you know, but, you know, looking like they were very intimate and, you know, not dressed at all you know, at a time when we needed to have that conversation. But not making it, you know, antiseptic. He really showed what it's like to be in the throes of passion and, you know, play, you know, play safe. Now, when you're working with all of these, like, great photographers, did you ever feel like you were in the middle? Like, you couldn't talk to... You know, Bruce might get upset if you're with Stephen, and Stephen if you're with Patrick. Or don't don't forget, you know, I come from a different time period. You know, I don't think they those people in particular. I think if I worked with someone who copied one of them, there there was someone who copied Bruce very at the beginning of his of this photographer, you know, other photographer's career copied Bruce very very much, and. Uh, that's the one person that, you know, Bruce did not, I don't think would have been happy if we worked with them. But we were freelance. We're the, you know, we're probably the beginning of freelance. So you worked with whoever, you know, you, you freelance, you say you work with whoever you get booked by, especially in the beginning. Totally. You know? So, yeah, I think, you know, even Avedon loved that I worked with Bruce Weber, you know. Because he, he said, "Oh, you work with Bruce. I just love his pictures." And very early on in my career, you know, I think of someone like Stephen Mizell as not only a, a photographer but an art director. And then he works with Fabian Baron, which is who is an art director. I think of you as an art director when you're on a shoot. You're kind of overseeing it all and have the vision of it. When you guys all got together, I know you did Madonna's sex book together. So that's just one example. How? Are and I, I don't mean the word ego in a sense of um, you know uh, someone having too much hubris, but how are you guys able to stay in your lanes when all of you are basically qualified to do all of the jobs? Okay, so again, 
Condé Nast trained. Before, I don't know how to say this, they, you know, the, the art director never went on the shoots. Hmm. Ever. You know, um, when I did the Calvin Klein ads with Bruce, Calvin wasn't on the shoots. Um, I mean, he sent, actually, somebody, the art director was on the shoot, but I think these are, you know, Bruce, Stephen, you know, uh, you know Patrick, DeMarchelier. They're very strong point of view. And they're composing the photograph. And they're composing it to their sort of what they see, to their vision. They're not working off, you know, even if they were working off an inspiration, they're using it as inspiration. You know, Bruce never really, you know, I never saw Bruce, you know, never had any, you know, he never had any pieces of paper that looked like anything. Mario either, I have to be honest, you know, Avedon, of course not. But you don't forget, like, Steve, like, if someone said to you, we didn't have the internet, so someone would say, oh, I love The Conformist. Let's do a, you know, a story based on the movie The Conformist. You know, there wasn't really, you know, there was Betamax. And you could rent movies from, you know, if there was a video store nearby. This is before even Blockbuster, which is now defunct. But so you, maybe you had a place you could go but maybe you wouldn't find it. Maybe it had not been put into Betamax. <laughs> so you would have to remember the movie. And then you would have to, or you would have to rely on the photographer explaining it to you. And then you run it through your filter. Then you explain it to the hair and makeup. They run it through their filter. Meanwhile, no one's seen it. So they're just running it, you know, they're just running what their mind is imagining it to be. And you come out something that doesn't, look like the conformist but you can see that maybe if you know enough you can see maybe that there is a seed of it in there mm-hmm. and you know so that's how i that's how i always thought inspirations were supposed to work like i used to you know pull inspiration from national geographic like i did a story at mario testino for um harper's bazaar the entire thing was National Geographic's. It was just like, you know, a picture of two guys changing in the parking lot in front of their car. You know, nothing. You know, a a car that had surfboards on the top. A stairway with a surfboard at the top. And from that, we created a story with Kate Moss and, you know, six guys, surfers, but we used like the little things from it because it wasn't, you know, we weren't copying the story because there was no story. But it was like, oh, isn't that staircase great? And at the time, I have, I have a friend who's an artist and he used to do scrapbooks in the morning before he started to paint. And we would go to the flea market and he would buy old National Geographics, old Life magazines, Look magazines. Uh, film magazines, and he would then show me pictures, go, isn't this like a great perspective? And it would be like three kids looking down a well, you know, from a film, you know, or like shoes, like on a dock. And we would use those as inspirations. 
we couldn't copy because there was nothing to copy, but we like, oh, maybe that's how we do the shoes. We go to a dock and we, you know, shoot it from beneath. And that's how I think inspirations are meant to be used. To get back to your question about how we all dealt, I'm not an art director, nor am I, you know, I was the creator director, which is a whole other, you know, thing, but I'm not an art director. So I, as the editor or the stylist, I always think I hold the space for everything to happen because I'm the one they're going to come back to, to talk to, because I represent the magazine. So, you know, but, you know, hopefully you work with people you know that are really good. Like, I'm not going to say to Brigitte, I'm not going to say to Serge or to Stefan or to Odile, you know, you know, Julianne, I'm just going to tell them what we're thinking about doing. And then they're going to do their thing because they're going to do it better than I imagined it because that's not what I do. And that's what they do so beautifully. So, you know, when we did the Madonna book, Stephen, it's Steve, what Stephen sees. It's how he sees a picture. And Fabienne very respectfully watches that and then maybe he'll say something like we all say when we're looking like "Ooh, do you think it would be cool if we shot it from above or do you think you know something like that you know what i mean Mm -hmm. but i think it's not as i've then subsequently have worked for other art directors where they're controlling everything and the photographer can't take his picture He's taking someone else's, and it's to me. I had I had to stop doing a very lucrative job because I couldn't watch it. Because th- I think the point of all of us working together and collaborating is to bring out the best in each other, not to stifle each other by using other people in the industry's, you know, <laughs> ideas. They wanted a carbon copy or a rip, kind of like a ripoff of something. Yeah, that they, they did. Uh-huh. And to me, that's heartbreaking. You know, I mean, I've copied photographs. I can assure you I have copied photographs. I'm very BAD, you know. So I will do, you know, but I try not to. I try well, to be inspired. Matt and Marcus, I won't say the word copy because there's a negative connotation to it. They've referenced Helmut Newton, Guy Bourdin, all of that, certainly 10, 15 years ago. In, in a genius manner, but how does that work for them? But to somebody else, it might be a copy. Well, the thing is, I think if you study it's, you know, I think it's copied, but there's something in it that's different. They, they, there's something of them in it that's different. And I think, you know, they have a very, very particular eye towards perfection. Mm-hmm. And in that perfection, it starts to change it. You know, so I think, you know, and the angle is never exactly the same. You know, there's something a little bit off that makes it not the same. You know, but it's like, I was like, is it sampling? Like, you know, why is sampling okay? You know, why can't we sample? (laughs) So, you know, I mean, I think in the beginning, you know, before there was the internet, it was harder to do because there was, you know, it was, there was no way you could just, you know, print it out. And, you know, you could take a picture, you know, a Polaroid picture off your television set, maybe, you know, but, right. you know, you know, and then Polaroid came out with this thing where you attached it to your, you know, VCR and then you would just like hit the button and, it, you know, picture would come out. 
But um, speaking of Madonna and the sex book, what do you think of her when you see her today? She's a performance artist. She has always, you know, provoked. And, you know, whatever my personal feelings are about the way she looks, is it's inconsequential. I think mm-hmm. she is Madonna and she has, she's earned the right to do whatever the fuck she wants, as has anybody. You know, anyone can do whatever they want, you know, short of killing people. You know what I mean? But you know what I mean? You can, you want to change your face, change your face. You know, mm-hmm. you want to do this, you know, she, you know, has been completely instrumental in so many, you know, things that are important in life, you know, changing the way we think about things through her actions. So, you know, she wants to, it's still Madonna. She, she, you know, looks the way she looks. It's up to her. You know? So yeah, I I know people talk about it, but it's like, really, is this a conversation? Really? Like I have, you know, I have my opinion, but it's my opinion. And it's sort of like, you know, it doesn't mean anything. You know, she is a performance artist. She has provoked that is her job more than, you know, meanwhile, she's as that, that being her job that she has made such incredible music <laughs> right. and images and stuff, you know, God, you know, we should be grateful. Thank God we have this artist in our world. You know, I love her. There's nothing I do not love about Madonna. You know, she is, you know, she, Madonna, she did what she set out to do and she has changed the world for us a little bit, you know, and that's more than most people have done. Another person that you've worked with early on in your career that is in the news because she is coming out with a documentary is Brooke Shields. I saw that Mm -hmm. she was on 60 Minutes um, last night. And they actually referenced the shoot that you did for Calvin Klein. Um, I didn't do the first one. We didn't do the first one. That was somebody else, which, you know, what comes comes between me and my Calvins. Right. That's That's the one you're referring to. That's the tagline. Nothing, right? So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I mean, you know, I think, again, I mean, I've known Brooks since she was 13. I, I mean, I don't really know what to say. I mean, I don't think the ads that we did with her were not quite as provocative. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was a different time period. I mean, you know, so it's a different time period. So, you know, I think sort of the double entendre was more acceptable, you know, and, you know, Brooke was, what, 15 at the time? You know, is that the question you're asking? You know, I don't know what I'm asking. I just wanted to hear you talk about that shoot or to hear what you thought about, you know. You know, I love her and I love Avedon and, you know, it was the commercials and they were, we did them with Garen. He was the hairdresser and they were, so much fun. She is adorable. And I think, again, we've known her, you know, I was on the set. Keisha Keeble actually did the ads themselves. So, you know, but I was there because we had a baby and we brought the baby, you know, on set to be nursed. And then I would be on set while Keisha was nursing. And then, um, you know, so we knew Brooke really well. Keisha actually knew her mother from before her mother was married. And she knew uh Brooks' father and was very had been very close to Brooks' aunt when they were growing up. So we knew Brooke, you know, in a certain way. And I think, 
you know, she felt, you know, we, there's a there's a babysitting on set. You know, there's you know Brooke with the people that she's known for years, and you know has a family connection to. So I think she felt safe, and we didn't. Those were not as racy. Mm-hmm. And in truth, what was racy about the Calvin was just the tag one. Mm-hmm. You know, nothing else was racy about it. It was just the tagline. And it was a double entendre, you know? So. I don't know if you want to go into this, but you had kind of like, um, I guess I would say tra- a couple tragedies in your life pretty early on in your career. Uh, mm-hmm. You've spoken publicly that your uh, wife, uh, your daughter's mother, passed away and then her husband who you were very close with and started KCD with passed away not long after that. Did that have a profound impact on, on the way that you chose to work and your career or your life? So, okay. So, uh, John passed away first. We had started, it was called then Kiba Kavako and Duka and it was all our last names. And, um, Keisha and I had divorced, but we were together still, you know, we worked together and, you know, we're, you know, we were always very, very, very close. You know, it's like the form of our relationship didn't work as a marriage, but the relationship always worked, you know, Mm -hmm. so we were very close. Um, And then Keisha married John Duca, who was a writer at the time for the New York Times. And then we all thought we should do a company together that, you know, does uh, advertising and you know then we ended up doing publicity too so we you know which then became you know when we left when they passed away and then i left it became kibble kvakaduka became kcd under you know julie mannion and ed filipowski and uh you know we produced fashion shows we did all that stuff then and they continue to do it in a much bigger way. I mean, they really grew that business to be like a mammoth. Fabulous. I was going to say you shouldn't have sold. I know, you know, and this is to answer your question. This is what changed. I had, you know, been with Keisha since I was twenty-two, is when I knew her. Right, so I met her at twenty-two. This was she passed away. I was thirty-eight. So. You know, we had been together all that time. You know, we spent every day together, all day, you know, for the most part. Um, you know, we had a child together. We were ma- had been married. Um, and she's the one who introduced me to the business. So to me, the business was very much her. And the reason we started the business was she was a brilliant stylist, but she was also a great sort of visionary and she was like you know people would ask her you know who should be shooting this what should we do for this but you know they would ask her all these things and she was like why why are they getting paid to do this and asking me the questions we should do this which is how why we started the business because she didn't really want to be styling she wanted the next step she would continue to style but she wanted more to have Mm -hmm. more say in it and once she passed away, it just became very difficult for me to continue. So I just, you know, I stayed for two years and I just, you know, the opportunity of Harper's Bazaar came up with Fabienne and 
you know, he, you know, he said, you know, either, you know, the train, the train will pass the station several times, but if you don't get on right away, you know, it's going to be different every time it passes. And this is the moment. And so, you know, I left the business. So you were at Harper's before Vogue. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But I left because I was, you know, completely heartbroken. And how old was your daughter? Thirteen. Wow. So it was it was a lot. I mean, I think it's a lot. I mean, this is not an unusual story. I mean, it happens to so many people. You know, you're left with you know tragedy, and you have to you have to try to figure it out. You know, so. That was Paul, did it help you put things in perspective when you're on a job and you're like, oh, no. God, we haven't gotten the second shot that you can be like, you know, this isn't important? You know, it's, I, you know, I think you have to know what the perspective of what's important to that moment. You're hired mm-hmm. to do a job. It is important to get the second shot. Do you know what I mean? Do you have to be horrible and rude? and mean do you have to you know yeah you know all these things no but it is important to get it done but can you That's leave it at the studio i have you know i think if you talk to a lot of people who are you know parents who are involved with their kids you walk out of that studio and you go home you don't have <laughs> someone else is asking for your attention and you got to pay attention. So you, you, it puts you, it forces the perspective kind Mm -hmm. of, you know, I mean, you can choose to do it another way, but I happen to have chose to try to be involved with my child. You know, she probably has a different (laughs) version of the story, but uh, because we never quite worked it out so well, you know, as parents, but yeah, I think, so I was able to, you know, leave it home. I also have a, I have a cutoff point. You know, once, once I leave, once it's done, it's done for me. I, I can't ruminate on it. I can't, you know, which, you know, seems odd, I guess, but, you know, I just can't. It's like, I have to like, I have to, like, I have to go to sleep, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know? So, yeah, I, but it's always important. I think it's crazy to think it's not important. It's how you hold it. You know, it's important, yes, for this. Is it more important than, you know, if, you know, something happened, you know, which has happened to me, you know, the school calls, I've walked out of things because I had to go there. Covered and handled. But, you know, something happens to your family, you leave and you go handle that. Mm -hmm. You handle, you know, you handle it so that everybody's covered. But, you know. That's just the way things are. Do you think that there's a lot of people in our industry who have suffered because they didn't have something outside of the studio? And in you fact, know, that that can also make your work suffer. I, here's the thing. I think you know, we, we pick on our industry as if it's an isolated thing. I think in every industry, there are people who can't leave it at home. Mm-hmm. You know, who, you know, don't have families or have families if they don't pay attention. I think it's just, it's not particular to our business. You know, it's, it's just a fact of life. 
and people have different priorities. You know, you don't we think that our business though, we have a we have a lot more freelancers, which doesn't necessarily lend itself to um home family life. And we have a lot more homosexuals, which, you know, before very you know, recently maybe didn't have marriage and kids as much as people as straight people. Right. But does I mean, yes, I'm sure it, it, of course it has some bearing on it. However, that person, were they straight, probably would have been the same. I think it's, it's how you're, you know, I think there's so many components to that that we could never really unpack it because each person is so individual. And I think if you're a workaholic, you're a workaholic. Mm -hmm. That's just the way you're rolling for whatever reason you're rolling that way. You Mm -hmm. know, Uh, if you, if you don't have a relationship, that's how you're rolling. That's your choice, you know, for whatever reason, you know, and I don't know everyone's reasons. I don't, you know, so it seems it in our industry because we're, you know, obviously it's myopic, you know, where we, that's all we see, you know, and a lot of times we're friends with, but a lot of people are just friends with people in their industry. So, you, you know, you, that's what you get to see, you know, right. it's when you go outside your industry and you, you know, it's funny stopping things that I thought were like, you know, like I thought I would never, I've, you know, I've just unpacked because I've moved to California and I've just unpacked my library. I started to unpack it. And when I was moving, I gave away 400 books. And I still have about a thousand, if not more. So I've just been unpacking them and I have like bound Harper's Bazaars, bound Vogue's bound allures, you know, unbound old Harper's Bazaars, old Vogue's, you know, I have, you know, so many things, you know, that are fashion. Then I have about a thousand photography books, a thousand, you know, designer books, a thousand crazy books, you know, there's just books, 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 books. And I looked at the books and I thought, oh, should I start getting rid of these? Because <laughs> I don't use them anymore. Because <laughs> they were my library. They were what I looked at. People would come to my house and we'd sit and we'd look at books. And you know, Don't you have my, a sentimental attachment to them? Of course I do. But I found that I'm less attached to fashion than I was. Because I, I was see. in it. I was in it. And it was important to me because it was my job. And I wanted to be good at it. You know, and you have to keep, you know, you have to keep growing and, you know, at your job. You have to keep changing, shifting. I don't know how to ask this, so I'm just going to say it and I hope it's not too uncomfortable. But is there anything that you would want to say about coming out? I, you know, I came out at such a different time, you know, under such odd circumstances. I wish I had had the you know, the balls to have done it sooner. I wish I had had the, you know, was not afraid, you know, because I think 
you know, I think it's very difficult to live that life of not, you know, of not being who you are. And then you're realizing it doesn't change anything. You're still the same person, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know? So it was like, oh, okay. It's not like, you know, God is not going to strike me dead. I mean, he's probably going to, you know, hit me with a bolt of lightning for terrible things I've said in my life, but not for that. You know, were you raised re- religiously? Uh, we're Catholic. So, I mean, I'm Latin, so I'm Catholic, but you know, we're, it's again, the culture of Catholicism, not actually, I mean, I stopped, you know, going to, uh, to church when I was 12. And my mm-hmm. parents were not, you know, church-going people, so they didn't really care. I mean, I did, you know, everything you're supposed to do, and we did it. I lived in a very bad neighborhood in the Bronx, and we did all, like, the communion confirmation while we were very young. And then I, pro- I realized probably because they didn't think we were going to get to be much older. <laughs> it was, I lived in a neighborhood that's known for the junkies and prostitutes. That's the neighborhood I'm from. And there's a bar in every corner, you know, it's kind of a wild, it's called Fort Apache. So you figure it out. (laughs) Did you feel when you came out, like a lot of us feel like a a little bit fearless, like once you lived in your truth that you were like, okay, now I'm free? I think, yeah, of course, there's a certain amount of freedom to it, you know. And, you know, we fortunately, you know, or in an industry where there's a lot of gay people. So it was easy to fit in. It was mm-hmm. easy. You know, I think, you know, had I been in another industry, probably not as easy, but I think that really helped, you know, and you see, you know, other gay men, other gay women, and you think, oh, okay, they have lives. They have, you know, everything that, you know, you were told wasn't going to happen to you does happen. You can have it, you know. And people, you know, have always worked it out for themselves, you know, in spite of not being able to get married. They've, you know, you know, Garen, who we've talked about, you know, this and Tom have been together for 45, 40, say, 40 something years, almost 50 years without, you know, being married, but with each other. So that's, you know, they're now married, but that's their marriage. That was always going to be their marriage, whether it was legal or not. Right. So people people work it out, you know. So yeah, I mean, I think it was. I wish I had been more fearless. I wish I had not been scared, you know, to come out. Paul, did you lose a lot of friends and or talent in the industry to um, AIDS and HIV? Yes, yes. It what was, was that time the, like? You know, I think I've blocked out a lot of it. Because, I mean, a lot of people I knew were pat dying, a lot of, you know, hair, makeup people, photographers that we worked with were dying. And as AIDS happened, Keisha was diagnosed with breast cancer. And then John, who was, you know, the third partner, was diagnosed with AIDS a few years later. So Keisha was trying to take care of breast cancer. John had AIDS. My dad passed away. Then John passed away a year and a half later. Then Keisha passed away a year and a half later after that. 
Keisha's mother passed away three months after Keisha passed away. My grandmother passed away in the middle of all that. You know, my uncle and aunt passed away. So all I did for a four-year period was go to my own family's funerals and memorial services and then go to memorial services for people that I knew. And I think it was so traumatic that I blocked out a lot of it. Like, I don't remember a lot of it, you know, because my daughter and I finally went to see a psych, you know, a psychologist together. And I explained to her what had happened. And she said, oh, you guys are like, you know, traumatized, whatever it's called, you know, PTSD. PTSD. She said, that's what you guys have, because it's so many, it just was happening so close to home and outside of the home. So it was just everywhere. And it just felt scary. It was very sad, though. I mean, you know, so many people that I worked with that I really loved, you know, all these talents that had never really, some of them had, you know, really gotten to where they, you know, to some high place. Other ones had just started really and were showing beautiful promise and, you know, just gone. And it just, you know, changed, you know, I'm sure it changed everything about, you know, the trajectory of the industry. Because, you know, those point of views were now gone. So it was sad. It was very, very sad. You know, I don't remember a lot of particulars. I just remembered it was scary mm-hmm. and sad. And, you know, you thought at any minute anyone could die. And I felt that way till recently. Really? Yeah. I was, I'm always, you know, I would, you know, always go like, my daughter was 13 with her mother and I would be like, you know, God, please let me get to see my daughter graduate from high school. Let me be, let her reach 18 so that they don't put her. I thought they were going to put her in like, you know, like, you know, if I died, they would just stick her in some, you know, foster care or something. I was really freaked out. And, you know, I was scared of everything. Everything scared me, you know, everything, you know, because I just, I because you see, you know, I think once you realize people can die, it's, you know, you think, oh, this is possible. Until that point, it doesn't seem possible. Right. But when a lot of people die in rapid succession, you just, you really see it, you know, like, this is possible. This is, this, you know, you're there and then you're not. It's that fast. So, yeah. Hmm. Did that answer it? I know I, I sometimes talk it. around no, it. No, <laughs> that was, that was, that was uh, yeah, I, I that definitely answered it. I wanted to move forward. And I've always had this question about your career is because you were very high up in the fashion, you know, um, world. I think that you probably could have gotten a job. Uh, you were at Vogue Harper's Bazaar at a fashion magazine. Why would you choose to go from a magazine that features what your craft is being a style a fashion magazine? with bigger numbers, bigger set budgets to a beauty magazine where all of a sudden the focus is a lot closer. You're looking at the face. It's not necessarily going to showcase what you do in the stories told. 
It, but it does. See, I think that was... Number one, I, you know, it was, I was, you know, offered the job to be the creative director. So it meant I had some say in what the visuals of the magazine were going to be, which was interesting to me mm-hmm. to be able to be, you know, to, to sort of, sort of impose something onto the magazine. And at the time I thought, well, you know, each magazine has to have its own voice. And I thought, okay, it has, Laura had at that moment kind of, you know, was looking again, they had a really strong voice in the beginning. And, you know, after the amount of time that they had been there, I think it's only natural that you kind of drift because the world changes and you have to find, you keep having to find your place again and again and again. And it was a, perfect opportunity you know it was time to they were shifting and i thought okay this will be good for me so it was a bigger job and you know i wanted that sort of control over the type of picture i was doing and you know i happened to you know i mean you watched me work so you know that you know i i'm very I think I am. I mean, you're probably thinking, no, you're not at all. But I think I'm very fluid on the set. Like, I, you know, can roll with a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, if someone says to me, you know, they want to do this hairdo, and I may think it is the worst idea in creation. I may say, oh, I don't think I don't love the idea, and then, but I know enough to let them do it. And I always say, but do it. Maybe how you know I see it in my brain is not how it's going to look. What you're thinking about, because I'm not in your brain, do it. If we hate it, we'll change it. Because I think that's the way you have to be. You know, I think you can't, you know, dictate everything. I was not interested in dictating, but I'm interested in, you know, having each magazine be its own character couldn't you have waited for w to open up a creative director position or another fashion magazine though no what was the difference it's the same to me i think the mistake people would send me beauty books all the time and it would be you know a picture of some you know crazy eye makeup or you know a blue lip or something and all fine but isolated having nothing Mm -hmm. to do with life and I think what Allure was always good at was putting beauty in the context of life. So it's not separated from fashion. It's not separated from storytelling. It's just what story are you going to tell? How many beautiful close-ups are in movies that tell you everything you want to know from that one close-up? But usually in the movie, you'll see a little bit of the background. So you have a sense of space. You have a sense of place. You have a sense of, you know, angst, of happiness. You see something in the face of that, you know, actress that you, you know, so I try to do that in, you know, the photography, you know, like pick people that really were great storytellers or were great, you know, like Richard Burbridge. was always very, very close and tight. So there wasn't a lot of information, but he gave you all the information you needed in that little area. 
So do you, you see know. a difference between a beauty photographer and a fashion photographer? Are there people no. who can do no. one or the other? No. Really? No. 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 Not at all. I think, you know, uh, you know, you you know, you spoke to Phyllis Posnick, who's a brilliant editor, does brilliant beauty pictures, but they're not always, you know, you know, she did them with great photographers. She did them with Penn. She did them with, you know, uh, Stephen Klein with, you know, Helmut Newton. Those are fashion photographers. And the beauty pictures are some of the best beauty pictures you've ever seen in your life. You know, Don't you think you can fake it as a fashion photographer if you're not really that good with the lighting? But if you're shooting beauty and your lighting is not superb, it's going to really show. You know what? I mean, I'm not, I don't know, you know, again, this is how I stay in my lane. I don't know things about lighting. I know if it looks ugly. Right. But I think I'm always more concerned with the content of the photograph. Like, what is the picture saying? So I think, you know, the pic, the, the lot of photographers that, you know, I didn't, use when they said books was because there was no emotion to the photograph. Okay. It was just, you know, it's like, you know, I want emotion. I want to look at a picture and have it evoke something, whatever that something is, you know, it's like why we love Stephen Meisel's pictures because they evoke something. It evokes an emotion for you. Mario evokes something, you know, Avedon did, you know, pen you know any great photographer will evoke an emotion you know Stephen klein they all evoke something but paul would you book jürgen teller on a beauty campaign if i was doing a particular type of photograph again appropriate what is appropriate for each thing people forget they think it's you know like clothes clothes have to be appropriate they're just not, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's a pair of pants. It's a blouse. It's a shirt. It's a, you know, what, you know, it's, they're things. And then they're things that are made into different characters by the people that design them. What's appropriate to the situation that you're photographing? You know, what's appropriate to the body that you're photographing? What's appropriate to, you know, so the same with a photograph. What, you know, what am I doing in this picture? What am I saying? So even if it's a close-up and it, you think that there's, you know, you have to get all that information in the close-up. So if it's just a red lip, do you want a dead red lip? You know, like a girl looking, like just staring, into, you know, empty-headedly? Or do you want a thought? Like, I remember working with Penn a few times I worked with him, and he would say, see something. To the and, model. Yeah, see something. So she would be, he'd be right in her face and she would have to see something. And the minute she saw something, you'd see something in her face change and take the picture. Happened with Bruce Weber. He would, I mean, we shot uh, George Cooper, who's, you know, the great you know, director and was a, a, an actor named Hart Bachner. And he was in this movie and we were photographing him at... George Kukora's house with George, right? So we were doing a portrait of this, of Hart, and he, it, the picture took an hour and a half. I mean, whether it did or not, it felt like an hour and a half. 
And I thought, oh my God. And the guy didn't move. What finally happened was he had been there so long, he broke down whatever he was holding on to. Whatever. So the face just suddenly relaxed into something else. And boom, there was the actual picture. He had, Bruce had been taking pictures the whole time, moving around, telling him to do, you know. But basically, you know, so I think those are all the little things you want. So, uh, yeah, I think they're, they're the same thing. A photographer is a great photographer. They can do anything. So what about hair and makeup? Do you have to, if your name is on it, it's at Allure and you're showing it to Linda Wells, do you have to personally think there's something either interesting, beautiful, or intriguing about the hair and makeup? Or are you like, that's not about my opinion? No, I have to, I have to, you know, I'm there, you know, as are you, as, you know, it would be the, you know, the hairdresser. We'd all be there and you want to see something. You know, we and you I might think, not think my makeup is particularly beautiful, right? If I'm on set the, doing something, you might you go. Well, the oh. thing is, if if you if you don't do beautiful makeup, I'm not going to book you to do a beautiful makeup job. I'm going to book you for what your makeup is good for. And what if, if I was brought in by a diva, a list celebrity, and you lost that fight? <laughs> what would you, you do? Uh, I've been in the situation. I think it's very difficult. I think that it is, I've listened to your podcast and I know there's, there's a big thing about, you know, uh, people who do celebrities and editorial, the difference between the two. And, um, you know, I have a lot to say. About well, you came to the right place. I know. Cause, cause it's like, I, you know, I can, you know, I've done a lot of celebrities my entire career. I think I photographed, you know, up until 2016, I think I probably photographed, you know, every celebrity till that point. If not till the 2020, actually, you know, I photographed a lot of celebrities. Um, and have been asked to do things. And, you know, usually I will say that I work in 2D, not in 3D as my response to that, because you know, someone. What does that mean? You know, I work in a two dimensions. It's flat. That's what I'm good at. Like if someone says, if an actress says to me, my ass looks being this, I think you're going to be sitting down. No one's going to see it. It's going to be covered by the chair. You don't have to worry about that. Uh huh. You know, so, but, you know, I think, you know, if you do red carpet premieres and stuff, you, you know, you, you know, it has to work in 360. They got to turn. It's got to fit them beautifully. I know how to fit. I know how to do it better than a lot of people do it. So I can do it. I just don't, you know, it's not something that interests me to do. You know, I would do it as a photograph, you know, like the whole story on it. But I wouldn't do it. You know, it's just not, you know, I think. But that's a difference of a medium. Like I did a film for my first time last year and I used to probably be somewhat judgmental of people in film. And I I realized that it's just a different medium, but you would take your aesthetic and your taste and your, you know, abilities to no matter what you did. So you would bring that if you became a red carpet. But but there's, but there's, but don't forget when the celebrity comes to, to, to a magazine, she's working for the magazine. 
you know, when you come to the magazine. Did you tell them that? No, of course, but they should know that's what they're doing. Dude, is magazine working for them? Uh, yeah. I would argue that that many probably do think that. <laughs> right, but but it's part of their publicity. So if, if I was going to be in Vogue, someone said to me, you know, you're going to be photographed by Vogue. I would start looking at Vogue right away. And they'd say, oh, you're going to be, your editor is going to be Tawny Goodman. I'd be looking at all of Tawny Goodman's pictures to see if I like the way she's put clothes together. Like, am I going to fit into that sensibility? And if I don't, would I want to fit into it? Maybe I want to. Maybe that's something new for me and I would deal with it. You know, Mm -hmm. I would look at the hair and makeup and think, oh, okay, they, you know, they, I like the way they do hair and makeup. I would study this. Rarely has anybody, actress, actor, come and said, oh, I looked you up and I, you know, love your pictures. I'm just somebody. Yeah. So rarely. And you wish that the actor would turn themselves over to you because they, they are being invited into your home and saying, I trust you. Yes. I mean, so I, we, I photographed Oprah for Vogue, right? I've styled her for Vogue. Um, I've told the story a thousand times, so, you know, but she called me all the time herself. It wasn't someone calling me and saying, you know, will you hold from, you know, Miss, Miss Winfrey? No, she called herself. I answered my phone myself because I never, my sister doesn't usually answer my phone because I want, I Terry guard this. I don't know if you've ever seen Tootsie, but mm-hmm. in it, she keeps saying to him, you know, what's wrong? What's wrong? Tell me now. Give me my pain now. I don't want to wait for it. So I don't want to get a phone call and then have to return it. I might as well just pick up the phone and deal with it right on the spot. So I, but one time Oprah called me, I was the other side of the office and my assistant said, oh, he's on the other side of the office. You know, do you want, I'll have him call you back. She said, no, no, just run and get him. Oprah gets put on hold. My assistant comes tearing at full speed across the offices of Vogue, grabs me from what I'm doing. We both are running like at top speed so that Oprah's not hanging on the phone. Pick up the phone and she's like, hi, Paul, it's Oprah. It's like, (laughs) and I was like, oh my God. And we start to talk about the shoot and then she wanted her hairdresser. She has a great, great hairdresser who, if you saw the quality of her hair, you would know how great this hairdresser was. She calls, we talk, and she wants to use the hairdresser. And I, you know, and I know the hairdresser's great hairdresser, but he's not the Vogue hairdresser. And by that, I mean, it's not that he can't do Vogue hair. It's, there's a shorthand when you work with, you know, the same way that if you work with a celebrity for a long time, there's a shorthand. So I'll say to you, oh, remember the eye you did for this, you know, mm-hmm. remember that shade of lipstick? Let's do some version of that. You know, there's a shorthand when you work with someone a lot. And, you know, I said to you know, I said, I know he's great, but, you, you know, if you're going to do the Vogue experience, have the full experience. Don't have it be 
you know, I said, if you're going to jump in the pool, you don't leave your leg on the side. You know, you jump in your whole body. Because if you leave your leg on the side, you may break your leg. So jump in and just do this because this is a full experience. Then you'll know whether you liked it or not. And of course, it's Garen. Garen ended up knowing her hairdresser really well. So they were, you know, the hairdresser came on the shoot just to watch. And he was fabulous. And he knew Garen. They're yapping away together. He's holding, you know, things for Garen, handing him pins. You know, it was heaven. But did she want to know that he had done black hair? I don't think she even asked the question, but, you know, but, you know, I think if you're a great hairdresser, you know how to do it all. For sure. That's you're supposed to be trained. We're supposed to be trained. There should not, you know, when I entered the industry, there were a lot of black models. So you had to know how to do it. You know, there was no such thing as extension. So you had to know how to work that hair. And if, if hairdressers didn't know, the model taught them. You know, so we, you know, I think it was such a smaller industry and people that worked together really worked together. Like, you know, you were but all I knew from reading credits at Allure when you lost that battle and you had lost the hair and makeup battle you know, probably a couple times a year or at least yeah. once. That's so true. do you yeah. look back at the photos and go, it's okay, but I, I wish did. I had, you know. All right, so I'm, gonna add, so I'm going to ask you something because you do celebrities. You've talked about yeah. this on the podcast about yeah. not getting the chance to do it because we want to use the people that we work with. So I did a shoot, and I'm going to ask you questions about this. I did a shoot, and... It was during the pandemic, and so they said, well, she feels more comfortable with her hair and makeup. I was like, you know, because of the, you know, the, the... And I was like, okay. And I knew one of them, so it was fine. And I'm usually willing to use someone new. I've always been willing to do, you know, like, you know, I've had people's assistants, you know, if, you know, become the hairdresser for me or the makeup artist for mm-hmm. me. And end up working with them a lot. So, you know, it has happened. You know, so I'm not stuck on it has to be. I prefer, you know, I have my preferences on who I want because I know what I'm trying to get out of the picture. Right. Um, you know, you've watched someone like Aaron work. There's no one faster. No one faster. It, you know... You've, I don't know if you've seen Dick Page work. No one's faster. You know, you've seen Brigitte work. You know what that is about. You know, we know what all of these people are capable of. So I know what to ask. I know who I'm going to book and what I can get from them. Mm-hmm. So, anyway, so I do this booking. I've not worked with, the, you know, with the photographer who was not really a photographer. They had, they did, you know, they were art. So already we're in another world. And, you know, I talk to the photographer what they want to do. I then call the hair and makeup people, which I never do. I've never called Garen or Dick or Brigitte. Because you don't do No, we go on set and we yeah. talk about it and create together. Right. You know, it's all about all of us doing this, feeling it together. But, you know, I call them because that's what you do now. And, you know, we, I explain what I want to do and they're like, no, no, no. and they were 
both adorable, 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 right? So go on set, speak to the celebrity who's divine, you know, first person who has ever said to me, I have looked at your work. I am so honored to be where of course i'm dying of laughter because you're honored you have you know but she at least she knew what she was getting into mm-hmm. explain to her what i want to do what the photographer wants to do and because it's usually what the photographer wants to do you know and i may say okay i'm feeling this vibe you know again collaboration everyone you've talked to every editor you've talked to have said has said this it is a collaboration get on set we start off you know Start the first picture, you know, it's fine. We do the next one, next one. So we're moving it along, and uh, she's not looking at the photographs. We're finished with one picture, and she's walking, the celebrity is walking off set and sees the screen. Picture is not retouched. The color register has not been changed yet. So, you know... And the light is, you know, kind of harsh. She looks at it and freaks out into the middle of next week. But being a true lady keeps it, you know, together and says, I hate the pictures. I hate everything about it. Just says it, you know, not with not anger or anything, just kind of flatly in the universe. Like, you know, it's not working for me. That's worse. (laughs) Well, no, I think it was not, she didn't do a freak out, which, you know, she was very right. much gracious, you know, well-bred person. So she's, you know, but then, so what, so it's her hair and makeup people. They all go off into the dressing room. I'm talking to the photographer. I go into the dressing room and it's a new hair and makeup. I've not been advised. I've not been asked. I've not, you know, and suddenly I have a different photograph that maybe, maybe doesn't work with the clothes or the way I want the clothes to look. I've not been consulted at all. But they, who do they work for? Right. Magazine or her? They work for her. That's where that's, they're not working at the, you know, they don't get the editorial at the magazine. So who are they going to listen to is her, not me. absolutely right. So, but no one in that, a situation like that, if the celebrity went into, you know, one of the, the people who normally like, you know, Garen or Dick or Brigitte or, you know, whoever, Stefan, and said, you know, oh my God, I hate it. Before you changed it, one of them would say, let's talk and see if, you know, with Paul and everyone, and let's see if we can come up with how to change this and make it work. And I forget, is the, the photographer was not your choice? No, but that... But yeah, that's so also that, a huge part of the equation. It's... That's not about the, reason, the disrespect. That was just... That's but not I don't even, good decorum, see, what they did. But, but, no, but what would you have done? You know, if I was who, if you were the hair or the makeup person on the set, would you have said the, to her? One of the first things you have to learn as a hair and makeup person is who hired you and who's going to book you again. Right. So, but so but, the, yeah, 
She's hired normally. He, you know, the hair and makeup is hired normally by her, not by uh, by the magazine. Right. That's why I'm saying they are going to listen to her At, because that's right. their but, bread and but, butter. But but you've been brought up editorially, whether or not you do a lot of it that you you know enough to your liking. You've been brought up that way, so you will have maybe the manners to have asked me. But so you see why it becomes difficult. Totally. Be- and I think so it's I, difficult for everyone. I, there's no worse yeah. feeling than walking on a set knowing that the 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 team fought tooth and nail not to have you there, in but the, not, even but, if you think you can. And also there's a bad feeling from every. I think it's like just one of those things that's unavoidable in the celebrity but, world. Yeah, but it's like I'm not taking anyone's job away from them. I'm not taking no. Kate Young's job, you know. Well, now they are. I have to disagree. Now, what happened in the industry is all the people who were at these high fashion agencies and doing only fashion are now doing celebrity because that's where the work is. So there is over the past, you know, six years, there has been a massive influx of people who would have never done celebrity who are now at celebrity driven agencies. So there's more and more people doing that. But that's a separate point. Right, no, but it's the same point. You know, I was going to say, it's like, I'm not taking your job, don't take mine. Also, they have done... So until you said the photographer wasn't great and not your point, I was right there with you thinking, if you're going to go to... And I would tell my clients this too. Who's doing the makeup? Oh my God, they're so good. And everyone involved is so amazing that you're great. The problem is they do Vogue Kerplakistan and have a terrible experience with a photographer who you know, is using like one bulb in the back of the studio and they look horrible. So they're coming to, they don't have the wherewithal or the the knowledge of who you are, who the magazine is. So they're coming into that situation, battle fatigued and scarred from what happened to them with bad jobs. That concludes part one of Paul Cavaco in my chair. Stay tuned for part two in our next episode.